Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and I thank you for your respectful and attentive presence as we usher you into A Touch of Zen, the 1971 film by King Hu, a Criterion Collection, spine number 825. We are going to talk about uh, this venerable example of the wuxia genre, an amazing film, uh, one that has enthralled and captivated my imagination over the course of this past couple of weeks. And I'm very excited to uh, get into this, but not too excited, just tranquilly excited and and, uh, eager to take this journey into a conversation about a film that I think is is, uh, really expansive, wonderful, encompasses so much of life and uh, takes us into realms that may perhaps surpass our own personal experience, but certainly uh, elevates our imagination and our awe and wonder in dimensions that maybe we, um, you know, only occasionally touch upon. So this is going to be a good conversation. I'm very confident of that and really happy that we can uh, hopefully entertain you and illuminate you and enlighten you as we discuss this wonderful film. Uh, Let's go ahead and introduce my guests. Uh, Let's go in alphabetical order of last name. Robert Taylor. Robert, you're not very often introduced as the first guest by uh, alphabetical order, but welcome to the show. I feel so honored to be here, and I'm so thankful that when you thought Zen, you thought Robert. (laughs) So, it's my pleasure to be here. I can't wait to have the conversation about this pretty extraordinary film. Absolutely. It's uh, going to be fun. And then my second guest, uh, Michael Wirth. Michael, thank you so much for joining us again. Nice to have you with us. Oh, my pleasure. What a good movie to come on. This is perfect. Yes, absolutely. You know, Michael, you and I have discussed uh, various examples of martial arts film. This is one that uh, I feel really kind of takes things to a whole new level. I mean, I've enjoyed our conversations about Zanduichi, about Bruce Lee, and, and, but but this to me is is really feels like it's just the whole package. There's there is so much richness in this film. It's one that I had. Probably, I think I had watched it a couple of years ago, but it was really almost in more of a compressed, uh, digestive <laughs> pursuit. I think when when Criterion first released this film back in what was it, twenty sixteen, you know, I I kind of just crammed my way through a bunch of the new releases and found it pretty impressive and 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 pretty entertaining, but I hadn't really immersed myself into it until the occasion came up for this podcast where I really, you know, engaged with it and, and, uh, you know, took careful note of all the different, you know, production details, the thematic elements, uh, the innovations that, that King who the director achieved. And, you know, even though this is a genre of film that I'm still, you know, just dabbling in, just, just beginning to understand and, and, grapple with it feels to me like this is quite an, a monumental achievement and so as we kind of get into this discussion i know that you know you've got a, a pretty extensive background and familiarity with martial arts films in general so would you be willing to just kind of give us a, a a walkthrough you know who was king who and and what did he accomplish in his you know significant career he wasn't extremely prolific but he did make some very important films uh, there were there's one other one in the criterion collection dragon inn that preceded this which was kind of the launching pad 
for this film. Um, it was successful, and there's another one earlier than that. But tell us just a little bit about King Who, if you can just kind of sketch out the, the highlights of, of his career and what he means to uh, Chinese and wuxia cinema. Well, yeah, he actually, it's kind of interesting because he's one of two sort of innovative martial arts directors at the time, the other being Chang Che, and they both came out of Shaw Brothers. And, and Hu, who's kind of, I, I, for me, is always interesting because I find myself relating to this element of him. You know, he, he, he was an artist. His, his mother was, I guess, uh, studied calligraphy, and he was working as a billboard painter in, in Hong Kong. And then that's how he got into the film industry, and he ended, entered through the... Um, the art department. So here he is working as set designer and graphic artist, etc., doing uh, during productions. And then from there, he went to being an actor, which took him to the Shaw Brothers. So then he's working in the Shaw Brothers as an actor for a while, which he eventually started to work as a writer and then work his way up to to being a um, a co-director and then a director. In fact, he co-directed a couple of fairly uh, successful films there uh, before getting his first shot at a direct directing and when he did that he had done a film i think it was called the sons of the good earth that was very political at the time and so they kind of chopped it up because it was very anti-japanese i think in its sentiment and and uh as a result you know and regardless of your your film content if you cut it up too badly sometimes it can <laughs> not be as good so it ended up being a failure of a film and they turned to him and said okay look here's a few bucks go off and make this uh Wuja movie so at this point the Shaw Brothers was getting this idea they wanted to reinvent the wuxia or the martial arts films at this, and, and go from less of the fantasy, somewhat effects-driven films to more gritty, realistic translations of these westerns, etc., these eastern westerns. And Chang Che and, and King Hu were kind of at the forefront of the success of that new movement because when King Hu went off and did this low-budget, you know, Suppose both both of them actually went off. Well, uh, Chang Che went off and did a movie called Tiger Boy, that he actually went in and went off to Shaw Lots. They gave him bar- like both of them. They barely had any money, and um, Tiger Boy. He even he, uh, Chang Che didn't even use a choreographer because he wanted it so gritty and realistic. So they just and he this is when he had that was the first Jimmy Wang Yu who we saw in the One Armed Swordsman who the first time mm-hmm. he used him and, and Lo Lei. Both of these guys would go on to be huge stars. So Tiger Boy and the film that King Hu did was Come Drink With Me. They're part of what was known at the time as being the, um, I think they called it the Wuja Offensive. It was like this new take on the on the genre, and it, and it worked, you know, and Shaw Brothers it all of a sudden reinvented it the, with the more realistic sort of gritty take of martial arts at the time. King Hu, of course, left right at that spot and went off to, I guess, Union, the where he did the Touch of Zen, and then Chang Che stayed at Shaw Brothers. So that's kind of more or less a, a, how it started with the two of them, and then Chang Che went off and did his thing at Shaw Brothers for many, many, many years, and then King Hu had a good half dozen of these films I think we're about to talk about, particularly a Touch of Zen. Yeah, well, this movie that you just mentioned, uh, Come Drink With Me, it is available on uh, Prime Video, you know, the Amazon service, uh, although it's a, a pretty unfortunate English dub only. In fact, that, that film has like several cha- uh, different languages, uh, German, French, Spanish. It does not have the original Chinese soundtrack, apparently. So that's a, that's very unfortunate. It makes me kind of want to seek out um, 
maybe a, a DVD or, or if there is a Blu-ray of that film, I, I wouldn't mind adding that to my collection because that film in particular very, very uh, nicely informs Dragon Inn, you know, the follow-up that King Who made after the uh, spectacular success of Come, yeah. Come Drink With Me. Uh, but those two films really did open up for King Who uh, a lot of artistic freedom. Now, you said that he kind of jumped studios, uh, you know, went over to Taiwan to have perhaps a little bit more artistic freedom, uh, have more leverage and sort of making the films his own way. Um, what's the significance of jumping from Hong Kong to Taiwan? I mean, they're just two different points on the map, but maybe there's a different uh, ethos or different uh, priorities happening in film industry from one place to another? Well, you, what you said hit it on the head. It was it was the mm-hmm. specific reason he did leave was for that creative freedom. Shaw Brothers had a fairly you know tightly run sort of uh, manufactured way of shooting, and I guess whatever contract he had with them at the time, it just didn't suit his his interests. So he, you know, like I said, Chang Che was really into cranking them out, and and Chang Che was a little more like the like Sam Peckinpah of the East, where maybe King Hu could be looked at more like the the John Ford with a with a little Antonioni put in there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think he was just seeking out a little different uh, means of, of production. And sure enough, when he went over there and did uh, Dragon Inn in Taiwan, which it, it's still even up, got through the. I mean, I don't know so much today, but at the time, that was a very common thing. Was a lot of filmmakers were going back and forth with Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, but they. Uh, he left Shaw Brothers, where, of course, was a great training ground for him. And, and like everybody at, at the time, he was learning from... They were they were constantly going back. I think we talked a little bit about this before, but they were constantly sending over Japanese and even Korean technicians and cinematographers, directors, etc., and actors back and forth between the studios like Toho and Dai and, and the rest of them and, and sharing information. So um, it wasn't that, you know, there. so once... He'd gotten, I guess, what he felt like was enough information. He took off and left Shaw and went over to work at um, at Union Film, which is where they gave him Dragon Inn. Surprisingly, Dragon Inn was then picked up by Shaw Brothers for distribution, and they ended up holding on to it for a while, I think, because they didn't want it to compete with some of their films that were coming out because they knew how, hmm. how good it was, and then they released it a few years later. So, uh, out of curiosity, was Union Inn essentially one of the, like, we would essentially say it's sort of a monogram or like an allied artist or something like that, or is it more of a large scale, like a Paramount, a Columbia? No, it was definitely a smaller uh, studio for sure, yeah. Especially compared to Shaw's, which was like the, the hmm. model. So, so Robert, let's go ahead and get you in the conversation a little bit. I mean, I don't know how much familiar do you have with King Hu as a director or Wuxia as a genre, but maybe what's your kind of opening statement or comment about uh, about A Touch of Zen? Well, I have almost no familiarity with it. I picked the movie because it sounded fun. Sure. <laughs> and as I am often want to do with the podcast itself... Uh, that said, I, like you, David, attempted to watch it, and I thought, oh, it was good, I wasn't quite in the mood, but when I rewatched the film itself, that's when I really got on the same wavelength as the film, and I realized how, uh, transcendent it truly, truly was. Once you get used to the pacing, once you get used to, uh, the characterization, then you can really pick up on all of the ways that, 
uh, King Hugh is being so special and so specific in uh, the way he's painting the scene. Uh, when Michael said that he was a painter, it did not surprise me at all, considering how the film looks and the beauty contained therein. The other thing that truly struck me right off the the bat was that the strongest character in the film is a badass female, which I was not expecting, but I love her, and I love everything about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Sue Feng is her name. And um, again, maybe I'll kick it over to Michael after I kind of make a quick comment here. Yeah, this is a film of mythic proportions, uh, the grandeur, the sweep, the, uh, as, as I've kind of already said, the, the way that it encompasses so many aspects of, of just life itself, of culture, of the personal, of the spiritual, as well as, you know, the, the kick-ass action, uh, the, the visual poetry, the the history, you know, the politics. I mean, you know, it's just, there's a richness here that is almost unbelievable, um, even though the film runs three hours. Uh, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of an investment to sit down and watch it all in one sitting. But upon, you know, kind of renewed acquaintance, those three hours fly by, and you know, I've, just, I've just come to appreciate, you know, all the intricacies of structure, uh, of the, the meticulous planning that clearly went into constructing this whole story, the transitions from intense life-and-death drama to, you know, ambling comedy, uh, rapturous poetic beauty, uh, the wonders of the natural world. I mean, it's just, there's just so much there. There, This is really a, a very abundant text uh, and, and one that uh, w invites future revisits to extract f further meaning and application. This is truly, as Robert said, a transcendent film. And it feels so much more modern than I expected yeah, as mm -hmm, well. Like, mm -hmm. I see probably, what, seven or eight films with you over the course of this journey, so I get used to... A very specific point in time uh, whatever the mm -hmm. worldview is this truly felt like something that uh, is both timeless and modern at the same time I have no idea I mean I know that it was roundly rejected when it was first came out and it wasn't until several years later that it found its audience but it's really interesting to think what audiences made of it on that first release because it doesn't feel like anything else that I have seen uh, on this mm -hmm. journey with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a good point. I mean, and, and you know, if we want to talk about our chronological journey through the Criterion Collection, uh, I guess there could be an argument made that we should not have discussed this film until we get to 1975 <laughs> because that's the first time that this particular cut that we're talking about today was actually available for public consumption. Uh, the uh, budget pressures of the studio kind of compelled King Hu to release this film in two parts. I think before he had even finished making the film that he had envisioned, they just said, look, let's put something together. Let's get it out there. I think part one was released in 1970, and then part two was in 71. So, And then in 1975, he did a, a re-edit, putting the whole film together in one sequence. It played at the Cannes Film Festival, I believe in 76, won a technical award uh, for you know you know the the clear brilliance of its 
of its construction, its cinematography, and all of that. Uh, it was in competition for the Palme d'Or, but but it did not win that year. But it certainly got some recognition, was celebrated, perhaps a, a bit uh, of a nod towards its exotic flavor. Like, wow, imagine a film like this coming out of you know China and all of that. But um, yeah, that that's basically a little bit of the backstory that this film did have a little bit of a, a troubled history, and because it was kind of released piecemeal, it didn't have the same kind of commercial resounding success that uh, King Hu's two earlier films did. And uh, that had an effect on his later career. So, uh, Michael, I'm going to go ahead and kick it back over to you. Kind of fill us in on on your understanding of of how this film kind of impacted King Hu's ability to produce and and direct later films and and what happened to him after this one, which seems to be acknowledged as the as the pinnacle masterpiece of his of his uh, of his lifetime. You're right. It's there was this. It's interesting because he wasn't as prolific as some of of some of the other directors of the time. You know, he's got really a handful of films. I mean, he's probably like fifteen at most that he's he was a director of. Even though he's had his hand as an art director and an editor, and 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 so I think I think actually Touches End was the first time he'd edited films, which is kind of interesting because it it does have a real interesting editing structure to it. If you you know you watch it from that perspective, mm-hmm. so. It was kind of nice. He was probably getting a chance to play around with that again. But right before he did this, he had started his own, the King Who Production Company, I think it was called. You know, So he'd started his own production company that this wasn't under. This was still under Union. But he did do a couple of films the same year, a couple of years, within the next couple of years, that are actually really worth tracking down. They're hard to find, like the Valiant ones and the Fate of Lee Khan or two other ones that are much more specifically martial arts films, and but still with all the same same artistry that he, he uses in this film. Maybe not quite as epic in its telling, but um, yeah. And then uh, he's uh, you're right. It it sort of became a hit and miss as he would you know his career wound up in the, the early '90s. I think the last film he did was called Painted Skin, and I actually have never seen it, but. This film did take a little while to get traction, like you said. It, it, once it hit Cannes in like 75, 76, and it won its award, it started to like open up some doors. But it wasn't maybe quite the same hit as Dragon Inn and Come Drink With Me were at the time. And it was funny because he was making Dragon Inn and making like even Touch of Zen in response to the James Bond films at the time. He's, he, mm-hmm. he said that he, where they, they have the secret agents, he was kind of doing his own version of secret agents <laughs> in the Chinese world. So that was kind of a funny comparison. Well, and I understand that he was actually sort of opposed to James Bond's concept of license to kill, that the government would just sort of say this group of men could just go out and assassinate whoever they felt was necessary to protect the national interest and that the the villainous eastern depot characters are kind of the same thing you know they have the license to kill as well and uh and you know you think of king who living in uh you know communist china even though he was not directly underneath the uh, you know the pressures of communism living as he was in hong kong and taiwan but he was born in beijing and so he was very familiar with uh, <laughs> the drawbacks if you will of a totalitarian uh, governmental system uh, so you know there there is a bit of a reaction and the fact that you know he was he was aspiring to be a, a popularly commercial filmmaker he he wanted to make um, you know, films that amuse and entertain mass audiences, and I think I think he he succeeds quite a bit here. 
uh, at least in terms of the product that he's putting out there. Now, maybe a three-hour, you know, epic about medieval China with all of its, uh, you know, elevated spiritual themes and all that is a bit more than the average popcorn muncher is willing to process. But uh, the the pieces are all there. You know, there's there's no shortage of of dedicated uh, artistry uh, on display here. Oh, could we talk about that just uh, a little bit more? Because the thing that I do find interesting is, uh, as we said, like, the first part had already bombed. So, uh, watching the film and knowing this information, I feel like the first half of the movie, everything leading up to and including the bamboo fight, feels much more uh, created for a major audience. But I also have to wonder if the second half knowing that the first half didn't do well sort of freed up the entire creative team to well let's sort of do it our own way and so that's why Mm -hmm. the second half of the film in particular takes more uh chances both you know with uh filmmaking tricks but also thematically uh because they already knew hey first half didn't do well second half probably isn't going to do that well either let's just do our own thing (laughs) hmm yeah yeah i think i think that first hour is is so kind of you know and and this is not meant critically but it's it's mundane you know it's just it's basically setting this platform for all the other things to sort of build upon and and i think that gets into some hierarchical structures that maybe i'll I'll comment on a little bit more but i think yeah if if you just made the film and cut it off at the bamboo uh forest the original you know the first bamboo forest fight scene there um it would i don't know to me it would feel like just a little bit of like Okay, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I'm sure I'd find plenty to enjoy, but it it felt, you know, incomplete and and certainly less than what the director was was aspiring to, um, because it's kind of interrupted midstream. I mean, the films that are made as proper trilogies or even two parters, you know, are typically conceived that way, and you you end with your cliffhanger or your setup for part two. Um, I, that doesn't seem really to have been any part of King Hu's strategy here. It's just that the studio is like, look, we put a lot of money into this. You're taking a long time. We got to get a little bit of return on our investment. Uh, let's get it out there. And, um, you know, I, and I, because I think it was kind of released somewhat prematurely, uh, and, and not as originally conceived, um, it, it probably just did not have that same kind of effect of connecting with audiences the way that the two preceding films did i concur (laughs) okay (laughs) all right so let's talk a little bit about su fang i mean she is just a a remarkably commanding charismatic powerful screen presence her look her 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 face uh apparently that is uh that is the key that that caused King Hu to cast her. She she does have a very brief appearance towards the beginning of Dragon Inn. She's the daughter of this uh, exiled family, kind of, again, that, that common theme of of noble families, of, of good heart and pure intentions who are uh, persecuted unfairly by this corrupt evil system uh, and, and these barbaric feudal lords who don't like the fact that these virtuous people are Im- impeding their their ruthless ambitions she's she's got a, a fantastic 
presence on screen. Uh, Michael, I know that she went on to do a, a fair amount of work with King Hu uh, from this point forward. Can you give us just a little overview of Su Feng and what she's all about and, and what she went on to accomplish? Well, yeah, and she, you know, and of course, King Hu found her with Dragon Inn. That was her first role. And, and so uh, and with the number of the actors from Touch of Zen, that was the case. And then, and like a lot of the actors he would bring on, unlike Chang Che, who would use a lot of real martial artists to do his films, uh, you know, King Hu was more about, as you were just punctuating a little bit prior to this, where, you know, he spends a lot of time, in fact, his, his focus is so much more on the beats between the action than rather the action maybe itself sometimes. And so his actors didn't always have to be uh, prolific or or. or or well-studied martial artists. So uh, she being one of them. So it was like he could bring in these actors and then train them to fight more or less for his films. And uh, she just carries it off really well. And surprising, you'll be surprised to learn if you watch a lot of films from this era, there were a lot of strong female leads. And in fact, it was this era where it started to shift over more towards men where where uh, with Chang Che who was like very male oriented that's why I was kind of calling him the sort of Sam Peckinpah version and uh but with um with King Hu you know he he loved working with her and he obviously used her later in the Valiant Ones in the Fatal Econ et cetera et cetera uh and she w- she went on to be a producer too she produced a number of films um all through the 90s even so i mean he kicked her off for sure and and this was i would you know say her her um the pinnacle of her her career in terms of just in terms of what's remembered and and um her, just even the size of her role and the showcase of it so uh yeah i mean this is a perfect example of her her work and what she did and she was great she's kick-ass and it's and it's and uh um I, one of my favorite and you can you can see some of the influence in this i think in in whether it's crouching tiger or hidden dragon or some of the other future uh, films that were to come out you know Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, Cheng Pei Pei, she was in Dragon Inn, right? She was the the kind of the lead female, mm-hmm. and she was in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, a couple decades later or yep. so. Uh, so, yeah, so there's a great continuity, and, and I think Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was, was certainly my introduction to this whole style of filmmaking. I, I just watched it uh, yesterday just to kind of reconnect, and, and I, I, I've been a fan of that film. Um, and I still am. I still like it, but I feel like this particular film, A Touch of Zen, just has such a depth of substance to it that is really, um, you know, it, it, it's a, at a whole different level. So I'll give, I'll give Crouching Tiger four stars, and in this one I'll give five <laughs> if you want to get into ratings there. Um, but yeah, let's let's start talking about the movie itself. I mean, because uh, we've already kind of alluded to the fact that it has kind of a languid pace at the beginning. In fact, the the very earliest scenes of the of the movie are just establishing like location shots there's like that that kind of illuminated spider web which is somewhat enigmatic although the spider web makes a few other appearances uh, at different points along the way and then you just got all these kind of very grand very marvelous landscape shots but they don't really tell you exactly where we are or what's going on it's just basically rooting us in the natural world and i think you know upon a little bit of reflection here it just feels to me like 
that's part of this mythic structure that King Hu is putting before us. He's he's first establishing the natural order of things, the purely life and death struggle of a spider snaring its prey in its web, the the majesty of mountains and sky and and you know flora and fauna and you know just the landscapes, this just the beauty of the the physical world that we exist in, and then you know sort of the next level is getting us into the ordinary life of everyday people, set in uh, Ming Dynasty China. I think this is what about fourteenth century or so is is when uh, these events would have happened uh, historically speaking, and we are introduced to this uh, this kind of humble somewhat ineffectual character named Gu. He's a calligrapher, a scribe, an artist, a painter, and you know he's a man uh, around 30 years old who has not really accomplished a whole lot in his life, but he's, you know, he's managed to find his comfort zone. He's living with his elderly mother who's bit on his case because she wants to see him get married, take the civil service exam, get a good respectable job, find a fine wife, and most importantly, have a child, you know, carry on the Goo family name. And again, this gets into, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to say they're stereotypes because it's not certainly anything exclusive to Chinese culture, but you sort of see the sense of wanting to extend the family lineage one more generation at least uh the mother says i can go to my grave at peace if i know that you know my son has had a child and yet he's very much happy to stay a bachelor just kind of taking his time and and doing his thing and you know maybe if things work out he'll find himself a wife and and it'll it'll all work out in the end but no particular hurry so she's kind of a pestering nag he's just trying to you know smile his way through all the little conflicts and go along with his little peaceful uh, routine that, that he's become accustomed to. But then we have a, a very nice little setup, uh, the way the ominous shadow is cast across his face as he's sitting there at his desk yeah. uh, getting his morning work underway. It's just a beautiful intro to the dramas and the complications that unfold. So so let's just talk about that, maybe that first hour of the film, which really is just about uh, a little bit of a mystery. Uh, you, you sort of gradually sense the the mounting implications of, of danger, of menace, of something kind of suspicious going on. I mean, who, who wants to kind of pick it up from there and just talk about these these kind of establishing uh, scenes in the first, uh, you know, 50, 55 minutes of the film? Well, it's mundane, but it's never uninteresting. No, it's always fascinating. Like, there's always a very, there's specificity with, the characterization which i really really appreciated for example uh his mother or as i like to call her his smother (laughs) um genuinely sounds like you know many mothers who we've all encountered and all met before she is fantastic i love the payoff with her in the second uh in the second half when they need someone to uh give gossip all over town it's a beautiful little payoff to the character um and I also like the way that he almost sets it up as a supernatural Agatha Christie mystery, right? Here are the houses, here are where they're situated, here's the mysterious thing that is going on, and then how is uh, Goo going to figure out exactly uh, what's going on? I love the little bits that are going on in the background of specific shots. I love that the first thing that the mysterious man who wants to be uh, 
not noticed at all does is get his face painted. I don't know why that detail is in there, but I find it so fun and interesting. And Goo as a character, I think, is a great protagonist, despite the fact that, especially in this first hour, he is very secondary to everything that is going on. I think that that's a very interesting decision by who to do it that way but ultimately a really really um smart decision by him yeah he's the observer he's the one who's kind of seeing what's happening putting the pieces together trying to reason out in his mind um what what's the significance of these mysterious appearances these people who are sort of watching each other and and sliding into doorways and sliding back out quickly uh, yeah, it's it's it is it's 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 all just kind of little scattered crumbs of clues. Uh, Gu is is not a he 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 is not a, a stupid man. I mean, he he may not seem like a, a great man in terms of his worldly accomplishments, but he's he's clever. He's shrewd. He's observant. Uh, he's a, he's a scholar. He has studied. He has just not applied himself in any way that kind of makes a mark on the larger society. He's a shopkeeper, basically, and, uh, you know, perhaps a bit of an underachiever based on his potential, what he's capable of. Uh, but he does realize that potential uh, a little bit later on. Um, yeah, and then and then we talked about Su Feng and Miss Yang, uh, the woman who moves into the... Uh, kind of haunted house, the the abandoned uh, sort of uh, fortress next door to where Gu and his mother live, and uh, these elements start coming together as we start recognizing that there are people, you know, kind of eavesdropping or spying or pursuing each other, but just kind of waiting until the moment is right, bef- right before they actually strike. And, and that's that's where you see that that kind of mounting, accumulating tension. Um, let's talk a little bit about just the, the placement itself, uh, the 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 fortress, uh, and this dilapidated town. Uh, this is a set that King Hu had command, <laughs> commanded. I guess he did. I guess he had directed it to be built a year prior to this start of shooting, and uh, I thought that was really fascinating. Just the fact that he wanted to have this this very large kind of studio lot um you know appropriately weathered and aged at least one year uh with specially planted grasses and and other foliage just to kind of give it that that dilapidated rundown look uh rather than just kind of putting a a fresh set together you know spiffing it up with a few little you know special effects paints or whatnot and then rolling the cameras Uh, his his very deliberate pace i think is another piece of of the lived-in feel of this of this movie, um, you, Michael. You've done you know film production work. What what do you think about the set and the, just kind of the establishing of this of this place as kind of the springboard for all the action yet to follow? Well, it's it's great, and I, I think that you, you were talking about the spider web in the beginning. I think there's you know no small nod from that spider web to what gets what takes place in that. Uh, in that section, you know, later on with them getting caught in their, their web. And I think that especially with the way the plants are sort of overgrowing the whole thing. And I understand that it's just also the separation of class because obviously they just live here for free and it's just the abandoned buildings, which is great. Um, but I think as a, uh, w- once again, a, another separation between 
King Hu and Chang Che, who's you know, the, the, uh, is that King Hu really had a sense of um, really had a sense of architecture. When I was making that you know Antonioni comparison before, but he really mm, does, mm-hmm, and he knows mm-hmm. how to move his camera around his settings and marry his. Particularly when you watch it, the last part of the movie, it's just even with the, the the landscape of the rocks and the caves and the way he's shooting everybody, and it doesn't feel like it's too over the head like he's being like oh you know so over pretentious with it um but i think he's just loves the environment and the way he uses it in this and the way he uses this his his dolly movements of his camera where he moves it at these sort of oblique times these points where i wouldn't have expected the camera to move or or reveal or uh, or to do the things that it does it always impresses me with this particularly this, this movie i mean it's true of all of his at least with come drink with me and um and dragon in i notice it too um so i think he uses this like you said about i didn't know about the building of the set ahead of time but i think that's great because it makes it makes perfect sense and that he's um He's so familiar with how he's going to use his, you know, mise en scene with his with his environment, rather with Chang Che, who you, whose action you can pretty much, when you watch his films, know you could just drop those characters in any setting, and he's using a lot of medium shots, etc. And it's just like that's it. So I'm, I'm worried about the people where with with uh, King Hu is he's so much more into, interested in where the people are, how they're relating. And it even pulls that into the fights. Like you said, the, the first fight scene didn't even come up till like 58, 59 minutes into the film, but when it happens and it happens within that, in that little area there, the way he's working the camera and the, and the design of the, of the uh, structure is just, it's amazing. I love, I love watching it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so you, you get that, that sense of danger building like you say there's there's almost like an hour before we get any of the real you know the payoff the action sequences and and the goods there but you you definitely sense that uh miss yang has some abilities that are beyond <laughs> typical especially when she's being pursued by uh Uyang, as i think is, is the the character who's having his portrait painted and you you recognize that he's not so much a bounty hunter, but he's he's part of the uh, you know the oppressive forces that are pursuing her and, and her guardians, and and uh, she kind of hoists herself up and and mystically holds herself up against the ceiling when she's yes, being chased down. And so so all of a sudden it's like okay, well we're we're in a different realm here all of a sudden, you know. But but I I just love I love that slow build up. Uh, before the real kind of you know pyrotechnics uh, in terms of the the martial arts skills, the sword fighting, the leaping, the cartwheels, and all of that really kick in. Um, but along in that process, uh, we also have sort of the the amusing kind of meetup between. Uh, Yang and Gu, uh, when the mother recognizes this pretty young woman who's just moved in next door as a potential mate for her <laughs> son, and and I just I just really enjoyed that kind of interplay there, uh, where Gu is clearly kind of you know dumbstruck you know, when he first sees her, and and again, uh, Su Fang's um, facial characteristics, her look, the, just the the that sense of kind of imperious you know unattainability is 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 so striking right there and yet here she is being sort of put up 
uh, to him as a potential suitor. <laughs> he, 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 I think he recognizes that he's, she's pretty clearly out of his league, and yet there's there's some kind of a, a connection there, and it goes on to consummate itself um, after after Yang learns from uh, Gu's mother that she aspires to see her son produce an heir. And even though it's not really, you know, heavily played out, that that's a very crucial exchange at this early point in the film yeah. that kind of feeds into the film's natural conclusion. Uh, and so recognizing the plight of this poor struggling family and perhaps recognizing Gu's um, pure and innocent heart, um, Yang sort of concedes. In fact, she initiates a, 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 an encounter with 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 uh, Gu that isn't really you know played out on screen. But you you understand that they have a, a night of intimacy, and then you know even though Gu sort of realizes that wow this this could be the start of something really wonderful and <laughs> something lasting, she's like no think no more about that that's over with you know so again she's doing this kind of on her own terms and it is it's a very strong female character um it is interesting you know michael you say that that's that was kind of a, a fairly common thing for its times but i think for western audiences you know the 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 badass female you know action lead uh, is is such a standard trope nowadays, but really felt very innovative, I'm sure, to, to Western audiences uh, at the time. Well, I think King Hu elevated the idea of it into a more leading status. You know, Come Drink With Me was so focused on her. Uh, yeah. It, um, yeah. It's different. We're talking about a different actress now and a different character, but that mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. that character, actually, the Golden Swallow, that w- was used in other movies, you know, that, so, I mean, it yeah. he definitely had an impact on the way that that female fighter was elevated to the leading status so there there's um it was there but just not to the degree that he had had it um uh he had, he made you know placed them in his stories and the men actually they're um they're much more scholarly if you watch king who's films and obviously this is a great example of it mm-hmm. the men are so much more scholarly and and less about at least the leading men i mean obviously there are other characters that aren't right, but right which play a, a, a more intellectual role rather than a purely visceral one you know mm-hmm. yeah and there, there was something really exciting about that dynamic of the cerebral man who's assisting with the strategy with the the subterfuge and and yang who's you know very much the independent woman capable of fending for herself i mean she does have her two you know general guardians uh, kind of masking themselves as humble you know more servant-like characters in their kind of disguises but um she does recognize you know she's in great danger and even the you know, the help of this bumbling scholar, artist, you know, Mr. Wishy-Washy Average, you know, uh, <laughs> hey, she'll take every, she'll take help wherever she can get it when she stops and recognizes, you know, uh, there's no guarantees here. This could all come crashing down. You know, the forces of darkness and oppression are, are in hot pursuit. And uh, even though I've got some skills, <laughs> that may not be enough when it comes down to crunch time. And so um, after they've had their encounter, we sort of get into the second act of the film, which is weirdly where the historical and political epic really kicks in. Now we've left sort of the uh, 
the realm of everyday life, uh, life in this kind of dilapidated Chinese, you know, uh, rustic village. Now we're rec- you know, getting into some of the dynastic issues, you know, the, the, the Eastern Depot, this kind of uh, corrupted wing of the emperor's uh, realm there that that is is able oh, david yeah go ahead can i say one more thing about act one I of so course yeah no that, that's fine I, hey we well, just roll I, with the thing it that's very the thing that i find fascinating and love about act one is 999 out of a thousand other films especially action films would have not had time for this would have easily just swept it under the rug they would have opened it with yang general lu and i forget the name of the other she. general yeah. she yep. uh would have started with the breakout it would have started with all of the information that we learn in act two yep. put it up front as like a big opening action sequence not even have had goo come in until probably 20 25 minutes in uh focus on him more as comic relief it would have been a more traditional narrative, but I don't think it would have been a more successful narrative. The reason why the first act of this movie, the first almost hour of the movie works, is because it feels not traditional. It feels more like a mystery. It feels like you're uncovering things, and that's what makes the world feel fresh in a way mm-hmm. it wouldn't if it were a regular old traditional action movie. So the first hour... Despite the fact that there are so many wonderful things to come in Act 2, and then the kooky craziness uh, transcendence of Act 3, I really think Act 1 is, in its own way, despite the fact that it's quote-unquote traditional in its storytelling, is really kind of badass in its execution. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very bold. It's it's And it's, it's it, to me, it, it shows King who has a... A really dedicated vision here. He he is he is telling a story on terms that feel right to him. And as I've already said, sort of there's this hierarchical structure where we start with kind of the ordinary, then we get into kind of larger issues like of politics, of dynasty, of uh, of worldly tensions. You know that are that are bigger than the individuals involved. You've got. You know, the emperor, you've got the corrupt wing of this Eastern Depot that's out there doing all of the dirty business. Uh, You've got, you know, noble families who are in sincere service to the empire, but doing so from a place that is, you know, innocent and pure of heart and, and really doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do. So you've got the forces of corruption and the forces of, uh, you know, honesty and, 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 uh, ethical service, you know, trying to have a society that's well managed and, and is playing by the rules. And, and the emperor of course is above all of that. And there's a true ambivalence between, uh, you know, does the empire stand for corruption and criminality or does the empire, you know, aspire to, you know, realize its noble ideals and provide a quality of life for all of the citizens that are subject to its rule? And I think those are issues that even apply to our modern times, <laughs> if I can inject a little note of politics in there as well. Uh, so, and again, certainly, you know, King Hu and, and his audience, uh, whether he's speaking specifically to the Chinese population uh, during the, uh, you know, the... Uh, or whether he's talking to larger audiences where the, the 
the issues of authoritarianism versus liberty and freedom and and the ability for people to live lives you know free of of uh, interference and free of exploitation and th- those are definitely timeless questions on and the bigger picture of of human affairs um, and so we we learned the the backstory of of miss yang and and the you know the cruel fate of her father and what put her into this desperate predicament this this running for her life uh while these while these cruel men are just out to extinguish her not for anything that she's done not even so much for what she represents i mean she is not going to mount a a serious rivalry to the eastern depot or to the emperor she's just a young woman born of a certain parentage uh who doesn't want to die and there's a couple men that are there to protect her and yet the eastern depot cannot allow that to stand they 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 want to impose a reign of terror upon everybody you know who's uh under their influence to say you will not report on our corruption you will not make waves you will not uh try to resist our you know our cruel edicts because we are absolute you know tyrants and and so that's kind of the 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 implication of those issues but what about that sequence i mean i um i had my birthday earlier this week so i had uh, my family over and we we did uh, decide to watch a little bit of, of uh, this film. I, I kind of proposed that to them, and and I was so enthusiastic to just share some of these moments. And I and I showed them that sequence where uh, Miss Yang was was telling the story, and and that that whole piece of her and her two guardians as they were kind of traversing the wilderness, being pursued by. Uh, the you know the militia forces there where they run into the monks and I mean that is just such a splendid incredible beautiful sequence there I I, t- I said to my my family I said you know I could I, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory but you can just watch this as a standalone short film if you will and you'll understand everything you don't even have to have the subtitles on it's it's just such incredible um the shot composition, the framing of the the three characters as they're moving through these incredible landscapes, it's really just quite breathtaking. And um, you know, I've I've kind of gushed and raved about it because it is such a transporting sequence. Uh, what are some other thoughts on on that whole section of the film? I mean, does movie making get better than the forest sequence? Yeah, no. it's it's. You mentioned Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but they're so many movies uh the house of flying daggers i'm thinking of the uh the battle of hurtgun forest i'm thinking of like they all take very specific notes and moments from that film none of them improve upon it because i don't think you can improve upon it like you can have uh, the wires removed you can have uh cleaner special effects but in terms of just perfect filmmaking, I don't think you can do better than that. Just the chopping of the trees, the angles, the quick cuts, uh, and the fact that you're also already emotionally engaged with these characters and you understand what they've been through and what they're fighting for, it really is just the first moment of real transcendence in a movie that will have several. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Now you're talking about the bamboo forest sequence, which is again, yeah, a spectacular um, sequence. I was actually talking about the the scene where they're going through kind of those canyons and those boulders. Well, <laughs> that's oh, okay. Spoiler I mean, alert. The, Sorry. The, actually, I, I did show the bamboo <laughs> forest sequence as well. We we kind of did that that first encounter with the monks, where the monks kind of um, disarm the, the, you know, not the bandits, but the, but the, the soldiers who are chasing after them. And again, it's, it's the power of, of principled nonviolence over, you know, barbaric savagery. And I mean, to me, it's just, it's just breathtaking. Um, and, and, and the scenery, I mean, it makes me want to book a flight to Taiwan as soon as we're able to (laughs) do the tourist thing again. Uh, Michael, what do you, what do you know about some of the, the, how that scene was put together and, and just any thoughts, even on the Taiwanese landscape, I was amazed by some of those environment. Yeah. I mean, I didn't go to that exact spot, but I've gone to Taiwan a few times and we, you know, saw some of the sound stages that were used, but, um, I mean, it's amazing when you do go there and you do go out and you drive through from Taipei to the outer regions like um, Pingtung and et cetera. You know, you just see these. It is amazing. You can see how these films were shot and probably even at that, you know, here you are in the 1970s and you can instantly throw yourself back, as you were saying, to the 14th century. But I think this this sequence in the film is interesting, too, because this is, again, this was uh, King Hu's first listed job as an editor and and some of this telling of the story where she's flashing back is the edit cuts are kind of instead of you know doing the the wavy water or the wayne's world thing you know you have these interesting ways he ties in the the contemporary with the past where you know he, when he's about to get tortured it cuts back to her with the fire poker in the yeah in the mm-hmm. coals and then there's a shot of the coals when she's talking to to goo and and it cuts to the mountain uh, range that ties in so he was playing around a little bit with his editing and and um which i thought was was great and and um and then of course we've got our introduction to the monks which you know roy chow is going to make his other appearance and mm-hmm. enter the dragon mm-hmm. and game of death coming up later for you Everybody knows him from the second Indiana Jones movie, but you know he was such a a great prominent face in in uh, King Who's movies. Oh yeah, he he is a fascinating magnetic presence and pulls off this idea of both sublime virtue and nobility, but complete savagery <laughs> in a nonviolent way. It's, it's yes, really yes, quite remarkable. And again, I think. The casting, I mean, we have to give a lot of credit to finding the, the faces, the personalities, even Goo. I mean, he's, he was in Dragon Inn, I know that. I don't know if he was in Come Drink With Me, but yeah. you know, it was interesting. When, when I first, again, introduced my family to the character, they remarked at Goo's kind of striking facial features. He does have quite a, an interesting gaze and his smile and I, the smile, the smile. <laughs> really and and the way and 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 especially since in in dragon inn he plays a lot more of a badass character here he's very self-effacing and 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 bumbling uh but he pulls off both roles very convincingly and again i i think in one of the supplements True. uh he was cited by king who he he had a job as a pharmaceutical researcher i believe a, a pretty good career was already going but king who just saw the face and says i want you to be an actor in my movies and persuaded him to do that i mean again <laughs> king who just must have had a real visual concept in mind of what he wanted his actors to look like because 
uh, even like you know general Xi, uh you know he's got a great uh, solidity to himself, his his facial features, and just the way they would you know do their reactions, the casting their eyes, looking at each other, and looking back at the action. Uh, the editing is is brilliant and just kind of placing you right in the dramatic crux of of each conflict as it develops. Here, that is just another one of numerous brilliant aspects to this film. Not just a visual eye, but the fact that he got such excellent performances from these actors, especially if they don't have that much history with acting or no history with acting, it's it's really astonishing. Michael said earlier that he used to be an actor, mm-hmm. which I'm sure helped inform the way he he spoke to his ensemble, but hearing that Gu wasn't really an actor before Dragon Inn is kind of astonishing because he seems like a seasoned vet yeah he was a good student he certainly and you know and you know the acting in these films isn't having to recite long monologues this isn't a film where it's the you know it's the vocalization of of the role or the inhabiting of the character in terms of this kind of method style they are in some ways models or archetypes doing what they do but again it's it's all done quite brilliantly and achieves such, such wonderful results so that probably sets us up to the next big sequence uh the showdown in the haunted fortress and <laughs> again this is another place where that the mise-en-scene really pays off because we've gotten to know this environment we we know the alley leading up to the general's house we know what happens when you go through those doors and you sort of see this huge payoff when uh menda i think is his name he well or or the eunuch way uh, they they get what 200 men supposedly surrounding the fortress once once they have determined that uh yang and, and her her guardians are holed up in this fortress that's where they mount their assault and this is where Gu's stratagem of the haunted fortress uh, idea pays off, along with some mechanical stunts, some some props. <laughs> I mean, it's it's all quite fantastical, but I think he achieves a pretty effective suspension of disbelief uh, in putting this this whole spectacular combat sequence together. Michael, you you've done your share of martial arts and and fight sequences. Uh, what what are some of your thoughts on on how this whole thing was executed? Well, first, it's it's interesting. There's a little bit of a commentary I think going on here because you know again we were talking about the modern wuja films. You know, martial arts films like it kind of gets the term kung fu film gets thrown out there generally, but there's so many. Um, levels and evolutions to that what that kung fu film was for its time you know and one of the things we were talking about earlier was this idea of the modern wuja film being brought in by king hu and chang che and and others at the time and so when you get into this um this and one of the separation things was the at the at that point the realism that was the more of the realism that was placed into the combat over the the fan, the fantasy of prior films, and I think when you get to this moment where they're dealing with the ghosts and and trying to that everybody's going oh you can't believe in these ghosts and there's all this faked fantastical stuff happening you know we got that moment afterwards where he's just laughing his way through all these mechanical things they've set up to to scare these soldiers off with. 
Um, I think there's a little bit of a commentary there on sort of the leaving of behind of the fantastical, uh, you know, the prior series of genre of the film and, and entering this new phase that they were going into. And in terms of the the fight choreography, you know, I mean, it's it's always fun for me to watch the evolution of fight choreography and and how it's shown. And in this case, our choreographer again is Han Yun Jae, who who was in The Big Boss mm-hmm. and who played the Big Boss and 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 also choreographed that film and plays the uh, general at the end of the film that's fighting with the monk. So you know, he worked with King Hu uh, quite a bit, and he came out of both sort of eras of the of the genre and he entered into the next phase with his choreography which was also inspired by the gangster films that were going on at the time this type of fighting and choreography which was a little bit less based on traditional moves and a little more on just visceral violence in a sense was like i said was inspired by more the gangster and the reality of what was going on in in china at the time so you have what a, a category of the kung fu film that came out of this called the they called the basher film or the chop and block which was when martial arts sort of entered into a much more realistic version where and then bruce lee kind of stepped into that and then created his own sort of extension of that so there's all these classifications of the fight film and this i feel like a touch of zen is falling right in the the beginning of this new new phase of it and yet at the same time that moment you were talking about this i think is making it and this is just me guessing but there's a slight commentary on the the prior one with the the fantasy and the ghost but i mean i love the way that King who works with the choreography. There's a couple of shots earlier where I think when Gu comes out and he's watching the two fighting in the in the the structure, and he's just he just has, has these dollies, these pushes. He, where he pushes in on the combat that's way off in the distance. I mean, it's, you're not even really watching the intricacy of it, but you're just seeing these figures along this landscape that just looks so dynamic. So, I mean, I just, I really appreciate what he does with the, with the fighting in this. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a, a savagery to it as well as he gets into the kind of showdown. I mean, as I was watching it the other day, I'm just realizing that there, again, I, I keep using this word hierarchy, but there's this kind of mounting pursuit where yang and and her guardians she and and lu are are you know working their way up the ranks before they finally get to the the head guy you know and nobody from the lower cast seems to have a uh, an opportunity to take down anybody above them but uh, you know it would be fascinating to you know to sort of look at how all of these <laughs> uh, executions if if you will are are structured where they take place because I, I i just get the sense that this is all very well planned out this isn't just a bunch of people slashing and hacking at each other you know they're they're making their way towards the central target which is you know the guy who gets off at the end of that that whole sequence where he sees his funeral tablet you know he he sort of gapes at it in terror like yeah this is the funeral tablet and it's like he realizes he's really again the, the spider web motif kind of comes back he's walked right into the trap that's going to ensure his death and of course yang she gets the revenge the the, the justice if you will of dealing the death blow but again it's 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 brutal it's it's savage it's really intense um and it's certainly not it's this is not 
easy combat. It doesn't feel like a cheap resolution because they just have superior supernatural skills. This feels very sweaty, very gritty, um, very hard labor to get to this hard-earned outcome. And it is really a, a very visceral, enthralling sequence which because it contrasts so much with some of the 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 scenes of of beauty and serenity and and natural splendor again it just kind of gives you that that full spectrum of of what life has to offer you know both the beauty and the horror of it all there's also a real puzzle box intricacy Mm -hmm. to the action sequence in that as you guys were saying we know the layout of the land we have hints as to what the uh, what the payoffs are going to be, but we don't know everything, which allows for a little bit of surprise. It reminds me in many ways of the very intricately built uh, action sequences of something like the Mission Impossible movies or um, that John Woo movie, uh, Red Cliff where everything that is set up has a beautiful payoff, and sometimes you're seeing payoffs of things that you don't quite get at the moment, but then you'll get the next morning when uh, Goo is walking through the... I That sequence is a little odd because he's laughing so much, but mm-hmm. I do appreciate when he's walking through, and you see, oh, that's what that was, and oh, this meant that, and mm-hmm. it's... The light of day, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I really appreciated that even though we're seeing the payoff before the setup, there is still time made to say, oh, that's what he meant there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think that that is a very, again, it's a a really effective and, and profound counterpoint. I mean, you've got the, you know, the brilliance of pulling off this audacious resistance, you know, that they are incredibly outnumbered. 200 to three <laughs> and 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 all they have are are props and uh mechanics so maybe there's even a little commentary on the mechanization of warfare and, and technology as a as a way of getting the upper hand against you know just sheer brute force uh and so while goo is having his little maniacal laughter moment the the, the cackling of smug self-satisfaction that this you know, ineffectual, anonymous little man was able to successfully fend off 200 skilled warriors. And, and uh, hey, who wouldn't be a little bit proud and haughty after achieving such a, a remarkable outcome? And yet, uh, as the sun rises and he sees the corpses all over, he's reckoning with the, the, the actual cost of this, this triumph and the destruction and the devastation that, it undoubtedly created. I mean, these are still people. I mean, they may be men of, of cruel intention and, and evil hearts, but they still had families. They still had loved ones. And the loss of their life is a tragic result of this horrible conflict. And then the monks show up again, and their job is very, very grim and very serious of disposing the bodies and of cleaning up the aftermath of this carnage. And so, Goo, even though he's been feeling a little bit of ego stroking and and pride uh, at what he achieved here uh, with the help of his his three colleagues in arms, 
the wind is pretty quickly taken out of his sails as as he kind of reckons with you know the 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 destruction and the the aftermath of all of that and um and then of course his next thought is well where's miss yang i need to find her i need to find her and and uh and the the monk the the abbot just kind of gives him this look like you know don't you see we have other things to worry about you know get on with your life and that kind of is the setup for the final you know hour or so of the film um maybe maybe not the last you know, 60 minutes but but uh, certainly the last portion where he he sets out on a quest it's not a very long one but miss yang and and her men have already abandoned the the fortress they survived the onslaught and now they are moving on and and goo is not quite ready to accept that yang is no longer part of his life and david did you check the running time of the movie and think wait that seems like it should be the end why are there 45 minutes left you know i guess want to get your thoughts on that because you know what ends up happening the 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 quest is that he he traces her steps because she had told him that uh when she was on the run uh she went to the monastery and that's where she learned her martial arts skills and so he he basically tracks her back there now how he knew where the monastery was or exactly none of that's really explained but you again you see goo walking through some of those same splendid landscapes arriving uh within eyeshot of the monastery and then just such a beautiful little you know little trick shot sequence a monk just sort of shows up from the bottom of the screen carrying a little bundle he sets the bundle down it turns out to be a baby the baby's cries get goo's attention and goo picks up the baby there's a note saying i am retreated to the monastery the goo family has its heir and it is like the sublime perfection of a conclusion to that story i I agree that that is in my mind that's where the film ends in terms of its the purity of its storytelling however we have some frosting on the cake (laughs) yet to come and and i think and and i and i love that we have those sequences but it almost feels to me like uh king who put the sequel to a touch of zen in at the at the last 40 minutes or so of of this movie but when we see the abbot (laughs) and yang walk off to the right of the screen you know the abbot folds his hands in prayer yang is watching from her vista watching her baby being carried away by goo this man who did protect and defend her life to whom she owes a an unpayable debt of gratitude Uh, her gift is to allow her son to be taken by this man so that the family name would carry on and she walks off and and the abbot even seems to have sort of a a a recognition that she has done something of of supreme self-sacrifice something of such spiritual nobility that he himself has to bow his head and fold his hands in reverence for the 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 beauty and and the generosity of her act and they walk off and and then we see goo carrying the baby and yeah hey if the if the screen had gone to black at that point i would have emerged completely satisfied because i think that just the sublimity of of how that story concludes is unsurpassed there was even a there was even a great shot for it as well because as he picks the baby up 
I don't know if it was intentional or not, and he's holding uh, the child. If you look, the background of the mountain where the, I guess the, the monks are, there's this waterfall, and the water is coming perfectly out of the, the, the rocks and going into the mm-hmm, child's mm-hmm. head. And he's sitting there holding the child with the waterfall yep. coming into the child's head, and it's almost like she's nourishing his brain. <laughs> it was like if they had gone out, like you said, on that shot, that would have been a perfect ending right there. Right. Absolutely, a, a baptism of sorts, or or just a kind of a, a passing of life, symbolized by the water and all those water shots that we have in that sequence. It's indescribably beautiful, and who knows exactly what King Hu's original intentions were. But I think the arc of that story is completely realized in that moment, and yet he's got some encores up his sleeve, <laughs> and I think that's kind of what we get with with the remaining section of the film. So 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 what do we all think about the uh, you know what happens after there because to me I mean the, the 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 transition seems a little bit abrupt after after Yang has already kind of made her retreat into eternity I mean she's almost become a, a goddess of sorts it seems to me anyways but then there's a kind of a voiceover from the abbot saying Yang Li Zhen, you have unfinished business in this world and so now all of a sudden we're right back out into the um, the externalities of a, another pursuing uh, militia. Now it's the baby who's in danger, and Yang and General Shi are out there to kind of serve as protectors over Gu and over the baby, even though Gu and the baby kind of recede for the most part for that final section of the film. They're more like props to be chased after until the until the action can, can kick in again. Right, and it's interesting because one of the things about the movie as a whole for me, which is Probably in some you know cases like Robert might know is a, you know some in somewhat of a no-no with screenwriting is how often we changing the perspective of this of the view in this movie you know like we started off with Goo in the beginning and we follow him for a while and then it, this part I love is like you were saying where you're you're not really getting the full information for people. these mysterious things are happening and it, not being played so much as mysterious but you're just like why what is this why is this who's this person here for and this kind of thing so there's this broadening of the story that by the end of it you've spent you know 45 minutes with this character 45 minutes with this character for you know and then as you're alluding to now at the end of the film we're meeting a new character the general played by Han Yun Che who's about to spend the last you know 35 to 40 minutes fighting Roy Chow the, the monk and more or less and then the and uh, Yang and her her guardians you know for, for for the last part of the movie and it really we we leap around quite a bit and not, not not necessarily back and forth, but where we we stay with the character for a while, then we're going to a different perspective, and I, and that's something about this movie that also I think stands out, where you might follow a singular vision for or for, of a character through a film, especially at this time, you know, than than this film did. Yeah, and I've I've read some reviews that level a bit of a critique at this film because they they find the final scenes a bit gratuitous. Uh, I'm not going to join that perspective because I'm I'm really grateful we have these scenes. I, I love them. You know, they're they're pretty fantastic uh, just for what they are. But they're they're not. I guess I, I would say they're not necessary from a narrative perspective. Like as I've already said, we could we could have concluded the film, uh, but there's so much that I find so enjoyable just the the you know again the artistry the cinematography the performances and and even building again towards that kind of more transcendental climax uh in the final scenes i think 
you could say that they are um, truly part of the structure and that and that King who is taking us through all of these different levels of of life here we're into more of an ethereal type of realm you've got the general as a as a true archetype of of worldly pride greed and arrogance and hubris he he finds it absurd that a, that a, a monk should be speaking of worldly political affairs and you know don't you know you're you're out of your place you know you should just retreat and and, go, and it's, it's kind of an echo of what the the young commander sergeant or whatever it was in, in that original scene where he says you know we're we're pursuing them you go back to the monastery and, and pray and let us do our business uh, except this general he sort of takes it to this more cosmic level you know he's he is disputing the 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 validity almost of of, of a more spiritual perspective on life and uh, saying you know it is not your place to question the edicts of the empire you you know I cannot change the decrees of the overlords nor can you and it's arrogance to level this spiritual perspective that calls those worldly powers into question and of course the abbot's just like get this evil creature out of my sight you know and and he sets his boys to to take him down but it it does come down to a final dualistic uh, conflict between the, the forces of light and the forces of darkness it's also uh, i agree with you david in that i very much enjoyed the sequence i don't think it's necessary at all it's the last 45 no, minutes of right. return of the king all over again um <laughs> that said i really he has earned this <laughs> you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the the first two hours and 15 minutes are so transforming and so beautifully rendered throughout that i am more than willing to watch this unnecessary little sequel um uh, because i love the characters i enjoy the new villain i wish he would have been maybe set up a little bit earlier and a scene like they could have easily set him up a little bit earlier i feel like but i went with it i loved it the imagery here the chances that he takes in the sequence and the way that he ensures that even though we have another epic fight it does not feel repetitive with the aforementioned bamboo fight sequence Mm -hmm. uh is really it's filmmaking to be reckoned with in many ways yeah, no, th- this is audacious. It's it's bravura stuff. I mean, the 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 use of backlighting and smoke, uh, the the different kind of pillow shots of different natural phenomena. You know, grass, water. You know, the elements, the trees, the slow motion. Uh, you know, the 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 flowing robes of the monks as they're leaping across the rocks and. Yeah, just it's 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 fantastic, and and again, I think King Hu is is kind of pulling all the tricks out of his sleeve and and just giving you know this this mighty conclusion. And again, if you had stopped the first part of the this two parter with the bamboo sequence and then just done the bamboo sequence to the what we've kind of identified as the natural end of the story, that might have given you about an hour's worth of a film, and you've got to have a little bit more than that to justify a second feature. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's kind of uh, an interesting uh, mystery that may never be resolved. Was this kind of 
uh, conceived and tacked on to the end of the story that he originally had in mind just because he had to, you know, pad it out a little bit there? Or was this part of the plan all the way along? Uh, because, again, you know, you keep climbing the ladder or, or the mountain, I suppose, is perhaps a better mat- metaphor, where once we once we leave the forest scene, uh, once the general has been tied up and, and disabled by the, the abbot's... Um, cohort there we then cut away to this barren desert rocky mountaintop tableau where the monk and and the whole crew uh, the monk his men and then uh, yang and she are all walking together almost on some kind of meditative walk some kind of contemplative journey or pilgrimage that they may be on and lo and behold here comes the general and his two henchmen again in this kind of penitent posture saying i have seen so much violence and destruction in my life uh, i want to turn and 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 repent and pursue a better path and and of course it's a it's a big subterfuge where uh, they get the abbot off guard and use that to take one last cheap shot you know the the forces of evil you know trying to uh, disarm the forces of, of nobility purity and light in one final futile attack you know so <laughs> again you're, you're just kind of getting into this more um, ethereal realm and kind of just taking the story to this cosmic duality here yeah is it gratuitous is it a little bit campy or absurd sure but i think it's it's also an effective way of visualizing uh, some pretty fundamental mythology that i think still speaks pretty powerfully i mean you know each individual viewer i guess is going to make of it what they will as far as how does this resonate with the the nature of reality or the universe and all of that but i think as a as storytelling it's it's pretty cool that said i'm very curious what you guys think if this last 40 45 minutes were just clipped off of the movie if it didn't exist, pretend the last fight sequence, pretend all of the the visions just didn't exist. Do, the movie, for me, would still function as a masterpiece that I love. Do you guys feel like, were it clipped off, you would feel the exact way that you currently feel about the film? Well, I think, you'd, uh, yeah, you'd, there would definitely be a, a, probably a certain difference like you're saying i agree with you it's like it's it would still stand as a a great piece of filmmaking but you're right it would be different here we are talking about this finale which i think actually plays so if you look at his other work one of the things that king who seems to do a lot with the fights in the in the combat in in these stories is he likes to try to find the chess of the drama of the fights in other words he's in the valiant, uh, the valiant ones, there's a sequence where all the the characters and Roy Chow's one of them are being circled by the, the the bad guys in the story, and Roy Chow and his generals are sitting around a, a table playing with um, I don't know which Chinese it's like a Chinese checkers, but what they're doing is they're moving them around as they're being circled. They're moving their chess pieces in the way they want their men that are now in the center of the circle to fight the ones outside of the circle. So there's just constant looking at the chessboard. What does he want us to do as the people, you know, and there's, so there's this like piecing together that's done, it's done that and dragging in too. There's these moments like that in the tavern where it's a lot of this sort of strategy before the fight. And I almost feel like this ending, even though we went through a lot of strategical fighting sequences earlier in the film, I think this ending between the monk 
which is probably representative of one thing in the story. And then the general Hanyun Che character is representative of the, the other aspects of the story. It's almost like they need to have this final battle that didn't really take place mac- in a macro sense. I mean, it's a micro sense because it's two people fighting. But it, again, that like you were just talking about, there's this initial fight that takes place. And this is in a, a slightly more intricate way. The choreography even changes. Hanyun Jae, who's the choreographer who plays the general, he he's, he changes his fighting style up differently than anybody else in the film. If you watch it, there's a certain... I don't know if he's bringing in the animal styles or what he's doing exactly specifically with his, his body, but he's changing it up so it feels different. You know, he wants us to sort of elevate the story to a, a new... We're at a new, a new place of martial fighting, and um, so it's such a, to me, it's such a understood tag on. I mean, it's long for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a, again, like how who, um, who carries this stuff out is he seems to not mind, and thank God people let him to just draw out those beats and those moments and that, that pace that he does through the whole film. And um, so, but you're right. I mean, long story short, yes, I think in the end, even if to cut that out, it would still have worked for me and, and still been great. But I'm I'm glad it's there, especially because I think the Marshall crazy audience at the time, and, you know, we still have today, obviously, would was never going to shy away from more action. And, I, and I, I really do think that the symbolism, I mean, the, uh, the abbot removes the knife and he's bleeding gold. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the silhouettes in the in the sun, the... Uh, the right. solarization and the kind of the color reversals and all of that kind of trippiness is very much in keeping with with the times. I mean, this is almost like a, a Chinese 2001, a space odyssey in terms of really <laughs> kind of elevating to the most, you know, transcendent cosmic dimensions that he could come up with in terms of the visual effects technology. Again, you know, the, the symbolism, the iconography, uh, you know, this kind of Buddha pose that, that the abbot is striking in, in the kind of that, you know, meditative uh, posture. He's just taking it as as kind of high and and lofty, ethereal as as he can, uh, to just bring bring the viewers' um, engagement with this film. You know, again, it's it's going to be subjective as to what you make of of these ideas as concepts. But he, he's he's reaching, he, he's going for it, and I think it's just that that audacity or that boldness that uh, I really admire. Uh, again, it's 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 kind of an epilogue or it's an appendix, but it's still part of the text. And I, I am super grateful that, that it, it does exist. Uh, it would be a shame if, if he had not, not put this on there. Um, although, if you just want to watch the main story, you and, and time is a bit of a budget issue, <laughs> you can go ahead and watch the... Uh, watch the little group walk off into the the tranquility of the monastery at the 215 mark and say okay that was a good movie (laughs) (laughs) and you can and you can watch this as a sort of a short subject if you will if you want to watch that last sequence uh as kind of its own um mythical and uh, you know clash and, and encounter there I, I love it. First interactive movie. <laughs> exactly. Choose your own adventure, right? <laughs> uh, well, guys, I think I think we've done a pretty decent job. Uh, hopefully, 
stimulated some interest and reflection on the part of our listeners to uh, you know engage with this film. This is one that I absolutely know I will I will watch it again. In fact, I've already got a a waiting list for my uh, my my kids and my family who want to watch this movie uh, themselves. You know, not just the samples that I've shown them, but the the whole thing because I really believe this is. Uh, you know, this is this is a masterpiece of world cinema. I'll definitely say this is one of the favorite movies that I've watched uh, throughout this season. And there's been a lot of oh, really great. great ones uh, of 1971, but this this film really transfixed me. So, uh, my absolutely highest recommendation. If you haven't seen it yet, or even if you have, check it out again because there are many dimensions to be discovered and, and enjoyed uh, upon revisit. I have a question for Michael, if that's okay. Uh, Please do. Yeah. What is the next King Hugh movie that you would like added to the collection? Hmm. Well, I, I mean, personally, I, I think it would be great if they could get come drink with me because it was so it was the beginning of his his um, sort of his into this, this genre. But I, I mean, I think the Valiant Ones is both Valiant Ones and the Fate of Lee Khan were under his production company. They're a little more into the martial arts aspect again, you know, which is kind of it'll be would be interesting. But I guess if I was be hard pressed for one, I'd I'd go with Come Drink with Me because I think it inspired so many other films. It has another historical context to it, so that's that's what I'd hope they'd get a hold of. I mean, he certainly deserves his own box set. I'll tell you that. Yeah, <laughs> he's got he's got enough to go in there, and and there's even enough variants because he didn't just do martial arts. It's just that's what he became. Uh, famous for right away you know now that they're doing the box sets on a more regular basis we're like give them all to us <laughs> if we have both Jacques Demy and Agnes Varda we want them all <laughs> <laughs> yeah and 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 whether or not Criterion gets a hold of any more of his films uh that remains to be seen but I I do feel like I really want to search out more of his work even if I have to go you know, region B or C or D or whatever to, to track him down. He just feels like a, a visionary filmmaker that I would do well to uh, become more familiar with in my own ongoing journey here. So, And that's one of the best things about your podcast, David, watching these movies, because often I just sign up for whatever sounds cool, and you introduce me to so many incredible filmmakers. Like you, I want to track down more of this filmmaker's movies uh after i finish and so it's just really the beginning the first domino that is being knocked over so thank mm-hmm. you so much for that david yeah and we mentioned too that it might be interesting just for some people to watch you know goodbye dragon in i think we talked yeah. a minute about that david that you know i don't know if you've seen it before but it's- i i had not yet i know you sent me a recommendation and i definitely will check it out I just kind of ran out of time this week but yeah tell us a little bit about that yeah. well it's just an interesting indie film that i it really inspired me I actually saw it a few times very um a very non-dialogue driven film about the last showing of this movie in a theater before the theater shuts down and so it's not a King Who movie per se, but it's obviously paying a big homage to him and a big respect to him by having it be the final film in this theater. And it's just about the characters that interact in this theater, mostly silently through this, <laughs> through the showing of the film. And it's just beautifully shot and it's mysterious and, and moody. And it's just an interesting piece of uh, independent, you know, modern uh, independent film. 
um, inspired me to actually work on a script for a film I tried to shoot a couple of years ago just because of the, the way they had done it. But yeah, it's worth looking into just for people interested in independent film that hmm. that are inspired now by this podcast or just King Who in general to just take a look at it. And where, where can you find that? Well, it's on a couple independent labels. I'm not sure who released it, but it's definitely available on DVD. I don't know if it's on Blu-ray okay. at this point, but yeah, it's for sure on DVD. I'll, I'll look for a link and maybe see if it's even streaming somewhere. It sounds kind of like a The Last Picture Show in a Chinese context or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so. and, and, yeah. and it's just outside, again, the side note that Choi Hark, who is, became a later-day you know, uh, martial arts film director of note, he... Um, you know, he tried to get King Hu to direct a movie called The Swordsman, I think, in the early 90s. And then King, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And Choi Hark ended up doing it. But then Choi Hark went on and remade Dragon Inn. So, hmm. um, Oh, really? So there's a, a an updated version or yeah. a remake out there of Dragon Inn. Interesting. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, so I was I, well, I, I was not able to uh, formally review Dragon Inn. Uh, it was kind of one of those films that kind of fell in that little lapse. I'd already passed that point in my blogging journey, that 1967 film, but I, I absolutely will recommend highly Dragon Inn. I think Come Drink With Me is about a 90-minute movie. Dragon is at two hours, and that's kind of the nice uh, setup for this massive three-hour epic, A Touch of Zen. So, um, yeah, so that's that's basically my, my introduction to King Who, but I'm not done with him yet for sure. Now, speaking of directing films, Michael, I'm going to kind of give you a chance to tell us a little bit about Appleseed. This is a, a release that uh, you've helmed and uh, is available on the Showtime Network. So I wanted to just give you a chance to talk about your latest project. Oh, I appreciate that, David. Just, I'll mention briefly, the the most recent film I, I did called Appleseed, it's a, a road trip drama comedy um is on showtime it, it came out the beginning of august so it's playing on their on-demand service their streaming service as well as i think their showtime next they've got like four or five channels you know showtime extreme showtime showtime next is one of them i think it's more family oriented is might be what it is but um yeah it's uh it's, the film i did, did it um i wrote it 10 years before we shot the movie for uh, rance howard who's ron howard's father and and um I just wanted to do this little guy. I've known him for a number of years and he uh, he's been this perennial actor in Hollywood and he's never had a leading role ever in his life. You know, he's just popped up in his son's movies or, you know, he's he's been around in hundreds of films, literally. And I just so I wrote a lead a leading role for him and um, managed to pull a very small amount of money together uh, back in 2017 to uh, shoot it and we went out and shot it and he passed away two months afterwards but um, uh, I was just proud to have the opportunity to get him to do it and it's actually his son Clint's in it playing his son for the first time in all the years they've worked together in their, their life they finally get to play father and son together and uh, you know it was a, a, a good a good film experience for me to have it was um, I you know I, I love road movies whether it's Tulane Blacktop or Emperor of the North or you know, bound for glory even, you know, and, and so this was sort of my way of getting a chance to do it on a low budget scale and do a travel story, but with these two characters and shot on moving trains and through Vermont and Arizona and, and did it on a shoestring, you know, and, uh, I tried to do most of it incorporating my love of film and into the, how I was setting up the dynamics of the, the storytelling and the, the shooting style of it. And it was small crew, small cast. And, um, 
it was uh it was i'm glad to have managed to get it done adrian barbeau's in it robbie benson i pulled into it uh so it's got a couple of throwbacks you know so it was it was fun well, I have not had a chance to check it out, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make it a very high priority. Uh, I know the first time you were on, you were talking about this film when it was still in production. So, uh, congratulations for seeing it Thank you. completion, Thank you. getting it out there, and I'll be checking it out real soon. I'm not even a, currently a Showtime subscriber, but I'll I'll get one of those trial memberships. I know. Get that thirty days free or whatever it is from working. Excellent. All right. Well, Thank Michael, you. it's been a great pleasure having you. On. Thanks and, to and both again, you. Yeah. You, you always bring such uh, great insight and background knowledge, and it's just always a blast having you on, as it is always with you too, Robert. So uh, give us a little update. What are you up to these days, Robert? Um, pitching a show via Zoom is super weird. Um, <laughs> it's a situation where I think I have gotten used to it. You have to, when you're pitching in a room, it's fun because you can see the people, you can see how they react. Uh, You feel the vibes. Yeah, precisely. When you're pitching via Zoom, sometimes they're in bed. Sometimes (laughs) they're, like, uh, stroking the head of their rabbit randomly, and you're thinking to yourself, where did that rabbit come from? (laughs) It's an odd experience, but uh, it's fun and fine, and I'm becoming acclimated to it, and so... It's going well. Uh, my film noir blog continues to go for anyone who would like to check it out. And life in general is here, and I'm healthy and happy, and yay! Yeah, we're all kind of groping our way into this brave new world that we're uh, living in here in the latter half of 2020 now. As yeah. The summer starts to wind down. But, well, good. And, and, and I'm good. Just had a birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great. And it's one of those occasions you sort of step back and assess where you're at in life. And it's like, you know what? It's all good. I I know that that's not everybody's story and there's a lot of hardship, but uh, I cannot complain. In fact, I'm quite grateful and blessed to be where I'm at at this stage of the journey. So, yeah. So speaking of stages of the journey, we are getting very close to winding up season three after (laughs) all the many, many movies we've talked about. Our next episode is going to be Roman Polanski's version of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. And then after that, we've got Harold and Maude. And then we've got our kind of year end episode of various short films. So, Three episodes left in season three. Um, we'll be getting those down in the next several weeks. Uh, but yeah, I hope everybody's enjoyed this uh, this conversation. I, I and this film means a lot to me. I feel like we've um, you know we've we've done it justice. Uh, there's always more to be said, but I'm really happy with how it's gone. Again, thank you guys for for uh, accompanying me uh, on this stage of the journey and. Uh, We'll be coming at you really soon, so thanks for listening, everybody. As always, your feedback is welcome, and uh, we'll find you online. We'll be coming at you soon, so until then, stay serene. (laughs) 